Welcome to My Messy Lessons, the podcast. I hope this show will encourage you to know and love yourself more, inspire you to look at things differently, or maybe just say, oh, thank God, I thought I was the only one. As you join me in my journey through life, please don't take it as the truth. I might disagree with myself 10 episodes from now, so use my discoveries simply to spark your own, to learn, think, and grow in whatever direction that takes you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my... 52nd episode, which marks an entire year of podcasting for me. Thank you so much for listening and supporting me on this incredible journey. I have loved sharing my messiness and my lessons with you. Before we start on this episode, I want to let you know where my podcast is going from now on. I'm going to take a break until January. And starting in January, I'm actually taking a course to become a sex, love, and relationship coach, which I am so excited about. And so I am dropping my podcast down to every two weeks. And so I'll probably do a personal podcast and an interview every month, something like that. I'm going to be doing some pretty intense learning, um, with my own personal sexuality, love, and relationships. And so I invite you to continue listening and be on that journey with me if that interests you. Regarding this episode, it has taken me quite a few months to work on it, and it has brought me a lot of healing to work with this story This was definitely the scariest and most traumatizing story in my life. And it took a lot of courage and vulnerability to share it with you. But I believe that it will probably help people. And so I wanted to share it with you. It's also impacted my life a lot. And the lessons that I learned from it are definitely some of the most important of my life. I want to warn you that in this story there are scenes of pretty intense violence and sexual trauma and so it's probably not appropriate for little ears and so With that being said, I invite you into this experience of mine and the lessons I got from it. I grew up in a conservative Christian family, so conservative that we weren't allowed to have a TV, we weren't allowed to listen to any kind of music, you know, I lived a very sheltered life and didn't know a lot about the world around me, especially because when I was 13, uh, my parents and my brother and sister and I moved to Ecuador in South America 
to help out the ministers there. And I did distance education. So I was just at home. And that's where I spent most of my time was at home with my family. And when I was 15, my brother, who was 17 at the time, and I were allowed to travel up to Columbia on the bus for some Christian conventions. And we were excited to have a little bit of autonomy. And we had traveled a bit around the country. And so my mom and dad trusted us to travel on our own. And we also had a decent grasp of the Spanish language by that time. And after the convention, it was Sunday evening and my brother decided he wanted to stay another night. I'm not sure why I wanted to get home right away. It wasn't like I had anything pressing to do, but maybe I just felt uncomfortable staying at someone's house who I didn't know very well. And so I headed back to Ecuador with a couple of Colombian friends of mine. And we hopped on a bus and we were off. We were traveling at night. And so I, you know, wanted to get some sleep. So I curled up in the uncomfortable seat and I fell asleep, which was a miracle because there was a movie playing at full volume and buses in South America are not the quietest. <laughs> but I, I must have fallen asleep because I was woken up by the sound of gunshots. And my first thought was that I was really annoyed because um, the movie had woken me up. But then there was some commotion. There was guys running up and down the aisle of the bus. And I was really confused what was going on. And then I saw something that clarified the situation with startling accuracy. I saw a man at the front of the bus with a gun to the bus driver's head. My heart started pounding in my ears so loud that I couldn't hear what they were yelling. And I had no idea what to expect. I was also terrified because I was the only foreigner on the bus and I was sure that I was going to be singled out or maybe they were doing something because I was on the bus and they were going to kidnap me, which was a decently real threat um, at that time in that country. I looked over at my friend and she was just as confused as I was. I asked her what they were shouting and she said that they were looking for someone. And... I said, okay. And we just kept driving on the same road, which was confusing because it was so normal. But then the bus screeched to a halt and we turned right and started heading up into the mountains, into the middle of nowhere. And I definitely went into shock because from that point on, 
my memory is in flashes and it seemed like what I understood and what I heard was blurred out like you see in photographs sometimes. It's just, it was just blurry and I kind of just went numb. I don't know if it was before or after we turned off, but they found whoever they were looking for and he was in the aisle right beside my seat. They were kicking him and kicking him and kicking him. And I felt like I was screaming inside, somebody do something. I wanted to do something. I wanted to stop them from hurting this guy. But I was frozen. I was completely frozen. It was like I was in a body that wasn't even mine. And I remember thinking there's a busload of people and just a few guys that are hurting this man. Like, why isn't anybody else doing anything? And then why am I not doing anything? But that's the power of a gun. And, you know, I don't even know what they did with him. (laughs) How can I not remember? But I don't. I just remember him not being there anymore. One of my friends said later that she saw a body at the back of the bus, and maybe that's who that was. We drove up into the mountains. I don't know how long it was, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then we came to a stop. They opened the doors and there was another commotion. And from what I understand, the the bus driver's assistant who took our bus fares didn't want to give the money to the hijackers. So they were kind of fighting a little bit, I think, and they took him off the bus. And I remember hearing him crying outside and it sounded like a terrified child or an animal or something. And I remember thinking that I would never forget that sound for the rest of my life. It would, it would follow me around. And then we heard a gunshot and then it was silent. And we knew that if we didn't do what these guys said, they would actually kill us. They made us take off our shoes, which I thought was really weird until my friend explained that you can hide money in your shoes pretty easily. And then they made the men get off one by one, but we didn't hear any more gunshots. So that was good. And then it was the women's turn. And when it came to our seats, I turned to my friend and I said, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? And she's like, no, I don't want to go. And I said, okay, I'll go. And so I walked down the aisle and turned and started down the stairs. 
a guy stopped me and he told me to spread my arms out and my legs out. And he patted me all over to see if I was, if I had hidden any money anywhere. But he took liberties while he was at it. And so being sexually molested at gunpoint was the first sexual experience of my life. I remember seeing it like I was floating above my body and thinking, hmm, I thought that it was supposed to feel good when somebody touched you this way, but I just feel numb. I don't feel anything at all. And then he motioned for me to get off the bus. And when I did, it was this black darkness, like a heavy winter blanket. I saw a couple of rows of men lying face down in the dirt with their hands behind their head, guarded by a guy with a gun. And I saw a little group off to the right of women who were huddled together and the guard pointed me over there. And I don't know why the women were allowed to sit up, but we were, we just couldn't look at the bus. And so I went and sat with them. And shortly after my friend joined me, she put her head in my lap and I felt so bad because I was shaking so hard. I've never shook that hard in my life before or since. And it could not have been comfortable for her to put her head in my lap, but she left it there. And I remember stroking her hair and squeezing her and trying somehow to comfort her. There was this thick dust on the ground that was so soft. It was like, like baby powder or cornstarch. It was so soft and it just covered everything, covered us the moment we sat on the ground. I heard a hissing noise. And so I glanced back at the bus and I saw that one of the hijackers was making the bus driver empty the air out of the tires so that we couldn't follow them or easily drive back to the city and get help. And once the hissing stopped, there was just this dead calm that settled over everything. It was, it was quieter than quiet. Like there wasn't even wind or animals or anything. It was just, it was like I had earplugs in. And then we could hear them starting to ransack the bus, but it was still just quiet little noises. It was crazy. There's all these people from the bus and only four or five hijackers. And yet we were rendered helpless or we, we felt that way anyway. One of the guys must have felt the same way I was feeling because he said, there's all of us and only a couple of them, like we should do something. And somebody else said, no, they have guns. They'll shoot us. Don't risk it. And so nobody did. 
And then it was absolutely quiet. We couldn't hear anything, not from nature, not from us, and not from the bus. And one of the guys shouted, they've gone. And we looked up and sure enough, there was nobody in the bus anymore. We all straggled on and tried to find our belongings. They were all over the place. Obviously, the hijackers had just tipped our purses and our backpacks just upside down and shaken them out. One of the guys yelled, has someone seen my talcum powder? And everybody laughed, kind of broke the tension a little bit. Once we had gathered our things, we started the long trek back to the road. And once we got to the road, we had the problem of trying to find a road trying to find a way back into the city. We had no money anymore to pay anybody. And there's this group of however many people, like 40 people on the side of the road trying to flag down cars and buses. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would stop, you know, at one o'clock in the morning on the side of a dark road for a huge group of people. And I remember sitting there just wanting to be home so bad and seeing these lights way off in the distance coming down a hill and then you could hear them and it would come closer and closer and you'd be like maybe they'll stop maybe they'll stop and they just whiz on by and you sit back down to just wait and wait and wait eventually a bus did stop and most of us got on once we were in the city my friends and I caught a taxi home and we dropped me off and I ran in to get some money so that they could actually pay the taxi driver before carrying on to where they were going. And my dad came out of the room and he said, Hey, we weren't expecting you. We thought you stayed an extra night. Like, why are you home so late? And I just said, Ugh, I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I just want to go have a shower and eat some brownies that were in the kitchen. And that's what I did. I don't remember if I slept that night, but I remember not wanting to tell my parents. I didn't want to bother them, which is crazy in retrospect, but it made sense to me at the time. My mom was really struggling with depression and my dad had a lot on his plate with taking care of mom and trying to raise a teenage daughter and son and working and cooking and just trying to do everything. And I did not want to add to their burden. And I I did end up telling them, I don't know if it was that day or the day after, but my parents had no idea how to deal with it. Like I didn't know how to deal with it. And so we kind of ended up sweeping under the rug and moving on. But for years, I had nightmares almost every night. And I remember lying in bed, listening to every tiny little sound, sure that somebody was in my room and I just couldn't quite see them. I had two locks on my door and a doorstop under my door 
And I was still sure that somehow somebody had gotten into my room. And I would just lay there too terrified to turn over and flick on the light. I slept with a knife under my pillow until a few years ago for probably at least 10 years. And, you know, it's so crazy because I had these nightmares like frequently. They weren't about the bus hijacking. They were just nightmares about random things. But I thought somehow that I had always had nightmares. And then I was talking to my mom when I was probably around 28 and her saying, no, your nightmares started after the bus. And it clicked for me that there was a a direct cause and effect here. (laughs) And I went and I started healing. It took me almost 15 years to see a therapist and start healing. I'm still in the process, but I don't know if there's ever a time where you can say I'm totally healed from this particular trauma that happened to me. Maybe it's always a process, but I feel like I feel like I can claim healing with this now. I feel like I've integrated a lot of it into who I am and who I've become. I want to share with you a few lessons I learned through this all. Number one, I'm not safe. As I've explained, I felt extremely unsafe after this, and it was obvious from my nightmares and heightened constant awareness. Gosh, I even remember sometimes when I was brave enough at night, I would go sleep in my mom and dad's room. Like, I was 15. Who does that? (laughs) You know? And it would, it would help, but only a little bit. So that kind of thing was obvious, but not so obvious was that I found my sense of safety in being in a relationship. I started a relationship soon after this, and I think it emotionally helped me feel safe. He was a very safe person for me. And so I was almost always in a relationship from that point on. I overreacted to anything that might take my safety away from me. I really took to heart this lesson that I'm not safe. Two, my body doesn't belong to me. After I was molested, I stayed disconnected from my body and numb. From then on, I didn't really feel like I had autonomy of it. It belonged to whoever I was with, really, and... Because my choice in that moment had been either allow them to do what they want or be shot, I had a really hard time saying no to anything from then on. I learned that my body belonged to everyone else except me. Three, I need to do everything on my own. 
I was on my own during this experience. And as I mentioned, my parents understandably were at a loss of how to deal with it after it happened. So regardless of whether this was true or not, I really tried to deal with it mostly on my own. I remember always telling them and other people, I'm fine. (sighs) Really? It could have been so much worse. And while that's true, it could have been worse. That certainly doesn't discount the fact that it was a really scary, significant trauma and caused a lot of issues. I did find ways of dealing with it. And although it wasn't in entirely healthy ways and caused some addiction in my life, I did deal with it as best I could at the time with what internal resources I had available to me as a teenager. I really learned that I need to do everything on my own and I can't rely on other people for help or support. I was to be there for other people, but other people could not be there for me. This left me feeling very alone. So one of the main points of this podcast is that sometimes the lessons we learn aren't necessarily true. Sometimes things we learn really hurt us in the long run. Sometimes what we learn at one point in our lives really helps us and protects us, but impedes our growth and our happiness later on in life. So as I grew up, and really mostly in the last few years, as I revisited my trauma, I learned the following. One, I am safe. We definitely don't always have control over our environment. Things do happen to us that we can't predict or stop. However, I now know that I am a safe place for me. There is a beautiful, safe place within me where I am connected to myself. I am compassionate and patient with myself. And no external circumstances can take that away from me. I'm also safe because now that I'm an adult, I know that I can seek out safety in others that are trained to deal with any scarier unsafe situations or uncertain situations even that I might find myself in, and I can find help for what I need. I'm safe because I have what it takes to find safety. So if this situation happened to me as an adult, I still wouldn't be able to stop it but I would tell my trusted friends and take myself to a therapist right away. I would validate what happened and do whatever needed to take care of myself. I wouldn't minimize my feelings and just try to stuff them down. I wouldn't tell everybody I'm fine. In other words, I can be that safe adult for myself. I can handle my own darkness. My parents tried to shelter me from the world thinking that this is what would keep me safe. And having a child, I can understand this completely. However, because of this experience, I have learned that it's really impossible to shelter somebody from external things. And that the best shelter is to be a shelter for myself. Two, my body belongs to me. All these lessons have taken me a long time to rewire. And this one particularly, 
I owe this lesson in a big way to my therapist, to Neil, and to Layla Martin, who taught a course in sexuality I took last year. I had been disconnected from my body and just operating from my mind for so long. I didn't actually feel and love my body and take time for pleasure. It was uncomfortable when I started to put attention on my sexuality because it brought up grief and fear and I just wanted to run away. I had to be so kind and compassionate with myself and be that safe place and guide myself through to that, to find a place of empowerment and voice in my sexuality. Neil taught me that a no is just as sexy as a yes, because that way he knows that when I do say yes, it's a hundred percent yes. He taught me that a 1% no is still a no. And that I have a right to voice my no whenever I want to, regardless of how it makes the other person feel. This applies to every area of my life, not just sexually. I'm still working on connecting to my body, but I'm a lot further ahead than I was a year ago. Three, I can trust others to help me. This has been learned in increments throughout the last 10 years. I've learned by taking small steps to trust others and learned that some people can handle my shit, that some people can handle my trauma or worries or anger or shame and not be triggered themselves. They can walk beside me, support me, love me, hold space for me and help me move through it. I owe a lot of people thanks for teaching me this. I know not everyone can handle my dark places, and that's okay, because I know people who can. I pay some of them, like my coaches and therapists, and I don't pay some of them, like my friends, and they all help me move through my darkness. When I try to do it on my own, I move a lot slower, I get lost more often, and I feel a lot more afraid I love and will always be grateful for these people in my life that have been pillars and taught me to open up to someone else. Sometimes we need to revisit and revise lessons that we've learned in the past. Not only is it important to ask, is this really true when facing a belief of ours? Like I often say in this podcast, but it's also vital to ask, do I still believe this is true? Is this belief still serving me? Does it actually have the effect I think it has? Does it really protect me? Does it really help me? Or is it actually hurting me, stopping me from the life I really want? Do I need to change it? And trust me, this is far from an easy task. But it's worth it. Like Roxy said in her interview, Sometimes we get to the point where the pain of staying tightly clenched in a bud, the pain of staying the same, is far more painful than the pain of change. And so we change. And on the other side of change, we find that we have blossomed. This is Phoebe. Thank you for listening to My Messy Lessons. 
If you'd like to continue this discussion, visit my Facebook group called My Messy Lessons, The Community, and ask to be accepted into it. I would love to hear about your experiences or questions on these subjects. If you like this podcast and want to get each episode as it comes out, remember to hit the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you have questions, comments, or would like to access the show notes, please visit my website at www.mymessy.com. The intro and closing music is Never Back Down by Floor Broad. See you next week. And remember, we're all messy. That's what makes us beautiful. Beautiful.